One more time, greetings in Jesus' name. It is indeed a privilege to be here this evening and to have been here this week. I was looking forward to coming out here, and I was not disappointed by my days here. I've really enjoyed it. I do want to thank you for your hospitality. I've enjoyed visiting some of your homes this week and interacting some with you. I feel like I wish I knew you better, but the time is short and life goes on. I do go away with a... uh, appreciation for what you have in your congregation and what you stand for and the values that are here. I've enjoyed that. So thank you for a good place to stay. Thank you for all the snacks somebody put up there, way more than would be healthy for me to eat, but they were available, and uh, I do appreciate that. You know, when I came here, I did not know this congregation, and I was made aware that uh, there's some tough things here. And I was on the way home from the airport with Dennis, and he told me about some tough things in his life. And I did not know that. I knew Dennis from when I was in Bible school back in the 90s and again in 2015 when I was here. But he told me a little bit about the health struggles, the fact that he's buying a house and possibly moving, and this would not be a move he would choose probably. I was just sorry to hear that. I mean, that's big. That's tough. I was blessed at what he had to say. He said it doesn't help to fight it. You just got to accept it and, and move on. And so I appreciated that. But the Bible says going to miss you, and the church is going to miss you, and uh, and God bless you. That's going to be a big move. I went to Bible school with Delvin. I think Delvin's here. And I did not know until I got out here and talked to him that they've got a cancer struggle in their family. And I was not aware of that either. And so here's Christy in the zenith of life, the busy time of life, giving and pouring out and serving and she's grappling with this. And may God give you health and strength and peace and hope and uh, health and rest in that. So I was aware of that. I was also made aware that a couple here just not many weeks ago did something that I've never had to do. And that's to bury a child. And uh, I, I, can't, I have six, and I can't imagine losing one. I, I just, my heart has gone out to them this week. And I don't know what to say about that, except that God is the owner of life, and uh, I think life is safe in the hands of God. And no human being, however small, is wasted, and and I'm sure there will be an impact in your life and our lives for a long time. And so, for all of you, I just want to remind you what Job said as he grappled with the goodness of God. In Job 23, verse 8, Behold, I go forward, and he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, and I cannot behold him, he hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall go come forth as gold. And so the fact that we can't see God all the time doesn't matter as much as the fact that God is working something for good, and we can't see that all the time. And so uh, wish you patience and wish you rest and grace until the whole story is written. It's not written yet. It's not finished. So as you support each other and walk through these things together, the whole congregation, uh, um, you're able to pour grace into each other's life and lift each other up in ways that uh, only God knows. So this is the last evening. I appreciate your attendance this week. You've been a good audience. You've been easy to speak to. And we're here this evening. I'd like to speak to you about a paradox. It seems like a paradox because it seems so opposite than the things we would normally think of or seem to work 
It seems backwards. And uh, I'm going to give you this little illustration because I thought of it right here on the bench, and I might forget it if I don't give it to you now. And you can just sort of think about it. But back in school, when I taught school, we'd play different games out there, and we'd play prisoner's base. And prisoner's base works this way. You have two teams on two sides, and they run around trying to catch each other. And when this team catches one, this one has to go over there and stand on a base and wait and just sort of be out of the game and just holding still and waiting for somebody to come free him. And that's how they play prisoner's base. Well, there was another game we played. Maybe there's a more uh, a culturally appropriate way to call it. We call it Cowboys and Indians. Uh, and the game was very much the same. You had two sides, two teams, and you'd run around trying to catch each other. And the minute you would catch someone, they didn't go stand on the base. They joined your team. And they had to, to play with you, and they had to run around on your side and try to catch the other team. And they had to uh, commit themselves to playing for this team now and giving it their best. And so when we think about what we're going to talk about tonight, that second example has more to do with the Christian life than the first one. When we surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't go stand off in a corner and just try to keep ourselves out of sin. We join his team. We're on his side. We're, we're trying to do the things that he would do. We're trying to get involved in his vision. So uh, let's be playing cowboys and Indians as we live the Christian life, not prisoners' base. So instinctively we know that receiving eternal life requires surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ. We just sort of understand that. I'd like to spend some time reasoning with you on this point this evening, why it is more logical to surrender to him and serve him than to resist that call. And why there's more joy in serving Christ than there is in serving myself. And why there's more rest in the yoke than out of it. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's in the context of coming to him and finding rest for your souls. And so, if you're out there waiting outside the kingdom, hesitant to come in because of this point, I want to encourage you that this is the best choice you could ever make. And if you're inside the kingdom, but you're up against something that you are struggling with God's will for your life, and you know what it is, and you're grappling with taking that step, and you're hesitant about moving forward, I just want to encourage you to take the step, because that's the, that's the most important and the most blessed thing you could do in your life. I'd invite you to cost, uh, consider the cost of, of resisting and consider the gain in yielding to the Lord Jesus tonight. So surrender is a military term. It's what one army does, what one general does, what one nation does to an enemy when they know their cause is completely lost. And usually this does not happen until it is completely lost. You don't usually don't surrender back when you think you still have a chance. Germany did not surrender until the Allies were in the heart of Berlin. Their nation was smashed and their men were were, uh, destroyed and their destruction was imminent. And then they surrendered. They said, okay, now we give up. Japan didn't surrender until their nation was crushed and uh, burned and nothing left. And so that's when they surrendered. I'd like to show an example in Scripture of an Old Testament king that had to do this. And absolute surrender comes when you've tried everything you know and you're just convinced you can positively not win. And this is what King Ahab said in 1 Kings 20, verse 1. It says, and it's not Ahab, it's Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad, yes it is, it's the next verse. 
And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together. And there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. And he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, unto the city, and said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives and thy children, even thy goodliest, are mine. So you can imagine King Ahab in there in his palace, in his room, and there are all his favorite things there, his wealth and his family and his possessions and his throne and his authority. And a knock on the door and a king or a messenger representing 32 kings outside saying, Ben-Hadad says, give up, because everything you have is his. Now he's backed in a corner, and he knows he can't face that. He doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. And it was an impossible position. So ben, or Ahab said in verse 4, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. In other words, I give up. Hands in the air. And those are very hard words for a king to say. It would be very difficult. But there's times and there's circumstances when that's the smartest thing you can say. Because to not say them would be destruction and ruin and certain death anyway. And surrender comes when you know that giving up is going to cost less than continuing the fight. And surrender then is swallowing your pride, laying down your weapons, and submitting to the requirements and hoping for the best, hoping for mercy because that's all that's left. Now let's change the picture. There's a different palace and you're in there. There's a different throne and you're sitting on it. And there's different possessions. It's your house, your life, your car, your plans, your... And there's a different knock on the door. It's not Ben-Hadad this time. This is the knock that comes in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And when that happens, have we said what Ben, what Ahab said? My Lord, O King, all that I have is thine, even the goodliest. Now, fortunately for us, it's not Ben-Hadad out there. It's Jesus Christ. And fortunately for us, he doesn't come to barge down the door. He doesn't come to destroy and ruin. He comes to invite into a relationship. It says, if you would give me crown and scepter and authority and right in your life, I will come in and sup with you and you with me. And we will begin a relationship that's a beautiful relationship from this point forward. We speak of salvation, and that's free. We speak of uh, freedom from sin. We understand that surrender is the premise of the bargain. We, We understand somehow without even saying it, that to, to accept what he offers means to give up something that he wants. And so there's this transaction that's waiting to take place. And there's no friendship with Jesus until the question of lordship is settled. We could go to Luke 14 this evening. Jesus spells out a little bit what this looks like. Very familiar passage. We'll read over them with a few comments. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. 
And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And down in verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus here spells out in some very stark language what surrender looks like, what he is asking of us. And uh, he mentions the very specific things, three things. He says, if you were to have a relationship with me, this relationship must come first in your life. And even the closest kinship and closest family tie can never interrupt your allegiance and your commitment to me. And we're called to love all men, including parents, honor all men, and so on. But if allegiance to the people I love the best would, would spell out compromise with the Lord Jesus Christ, then that would be a problem. We need to keep first things first. And that could mean different things to different people. Depending on the culture you live in, it could mean disownment. It could mean banishment. In some cultures, you could lose your life. Uh, honor killings and things like that. The second thing he mentions here is hate your own life. <laughs> How can you do that? Your own life cannot be more dear to you than, than your call to follow me. Your own life. That could mean physical life. It could mean other things. The most precious thing. I'm always blessed and challenged by the example of Borden's son. This was not the son of the Borden Soup Company, I don't think. He was uh, also part of a wealthy family that was had business and so on. And as a gift, he was given a trip around the world. And he, on this trip, was struck with the deep spiritual needs in every place he went. And he came back changed in his commitment. He decided he's going to be a missionary to these places instead of taking over his family business. And so he went to Yale to study to be a missionary, all the while seeking souls around to an outstanding job of outreach and discipleship there. He turned down job offers. He turned down positions. And he sailed to Egypt to learn Arabic. And only about a month after arriving in Egypt, he died of spinal meningitis, I believe, or some kind of a... a uh, a disease within a month. And we would say that's a life thrown away. A promising young man with a promising future and threw his life away at a young age. What is said, and I didn't see this myself with my own eyes in his Bible, but it was said that there were several entries in that Bible when they found it. Soon after he made that choice, he wrote down there no reserves after he committed himself to doing this. And after his dad had told him, you'll never have a part in my company, he wrote down, uh, no retreat. And a few weeks before he died, he wrote yet, no regrets. And even a life thrown away at that age for the cause of Christ is not a wasted life. I, I think that's the kind of attitude Jesus asked for. Jesus says yet, Forsake your possessions. I know that Jesus has wealthy disciples, poor disciples, in-between disciples. But one common element we have is the things that we own, we recognize to be his things and at his disposal. We feed our families. We run our businesses. But all the time we know that in the end, it's his oversight and his directives and his uh, calling that I will respond to. See, the problem with wealth is it's often not owned as much as it owns us and makes our decisions for us and, and makes us do things for its sake. Jesus says, do it for my sake. 
whatever you do, uh, keep his priorities in mind. And uh, I think when Jesus bought the farm, so to speak, all the, the house, the tractors, the cows, the equipment all came with it. Now, many resist this call because it feels painful. It feels like you're giving up life itself. It feels like you will begin a joyless existence the minute you do this, the minute you surrender this way and enter this kind of a relationship with him. I would like to reason on that point a little bit and help us understand why it is in our best interest to do this, to surrender, to agree with him, to join his side in the cowboy and Indian game and just get behind his agenda and, and, and think of life that way. Well, surrendering to God is in our best interest because we live in a world of laws. And we talked about that the other evening. Laws don't change. Laws are always in effect. And so there's physical laws. You obey them every day. You obey gravity without thinking about it. You obey uh, physics and time restraints. Can you imagine a person that dedicates his life to defy the laws of nature? I'm going to do it differently. I'm not going to do that. So he runs into trees and jumps off cliffs to try to prove he can do it. He'll be much wiser and enjoy a much freer and happier life the minute he decides he will submit to the laws of nature and simply live within the boundaries that he set. That'd be smart. There's traffic laws. We obey them every day too, at least mostly. Uh, We drive on the right. We don't pass on a solid line. We try to obey the speed limit. But imagine going to the car with the attitude... Nobody's going to tell me how to drive because I learned. I'll drive on the left. I'll pass on the curve. Some idiot painted the solid line where I would have painted the dotted line. I'm going to do what I want to do. And if he survives, he will be much much happier if he will just learn to submit to the things that surround the whole concept of driving and just obey it. It's in his best interest. And uh, there's spiritual laws that have just as much effect as gravity and traffic laws. Sin brings death. You reap what you sow. Honoring parents brings a, a long life. Uh, dishonoring brings consequences. Um, God is not mocked. One may ignore this for a time, but in the end, God is not mocked, and consequences will come. And so surrender is very simple. Surrender is simply laying down the fight against laws I can't change and a presence I'll never escape. It's just laying down the fight and saying... Uh, I surrender to that. I accept that. And I'm a freer man if I know the limits and just find contentment inside those limits. That's one reason that surrender is for our good. It's good for us. There's another reason. This one is given in 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, then they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So here in this passage, if you would read it, Paul is writing about the cross, what the cross meant to him, and how the cross changed him, and what response the cross requires of him. And his logic goes like this. If if it cost Christ something to procure salvation for me, then it would logically cost me something to accept it. And the love of Christ constrains us. It arrests us. It motivates us. It's a compelling force that, that turns us in a certain direction. 
It's a constant remembrance of what he's done. We have probably never felt so indebted to any certain person as the friends of Ross McGinnis, who was a soldier from Meadville, Pennsylvania, who was in Iraq a number of years ago. And they were driving in a military vehicle, I think through a street in the town or city or something, and somebody lobbed a grenade from a rooftop, and it landed right inside their open vehicle. Now, if that were me, I'd probably be diving for the exits and trying to get out of there as quick as I could. But Ross didn't. He yelled a warning and threw himself on top of the hand grenade just as it exploded, and it ripped him badly and killed him instantly. But his three or four friends in that vehicle escaped almost unhurt. And he saved them by what he did. Now, can you imagine what the other four will feel like the rest of their life? Every sunrise is one that I get to see because he's not here to see it. Every time I go home and visit my girlfriend or see my children grow up, it's because he never will. And there will be a deep sense of gratitude and unpayable debt for the rest of their life, an unpayable way of debt to a person that gave their life that way. And Paul wants us to understand a couple of things here. Number one, or two things, if Christ died, then all were dead. That's what he says in this verse. And so we look at Jesus' cross and what he had to go through for my sin, and we look at that and understand that that is a representation of my condition before I knew Christ. Um, the way he had to die shows somewhat the seriousness of our offense to God. It shows that my offense did not require just a slap on the wrist. It required that to atone for my sin. And uh, if you were Ross McGinnis' friend and looking at the damage that that hand grenade must have done and realizing it wouldn't be for him, that would be the damage that I would be dealing with myself. And the penalty of sin is death. That's one thing he wants to understand. We were all dead. But here's the second thing he wants us to understand. If Christ died to give life to the dead, then those who were raised from life should live for him. Isn't that a logical sequence? He died to give life. These were raised and they should live for him. It's like It's a natural, logical sequence. And Jesus didn't just die to save our life. He died to make us his. And I believe Christ's purchase deserves the purchased possession. Think of this little example. Let's say one of you young people uh, is saving your money for a car. You really want a car. And you have your eye on this 89 Toyota, some dealership in Rochester. And so you save your dollar bills and you go in there and plunk them on the counter and say, this is, this is my money, I want that car out there. And the dealer says, okay, I'll write out the papers. He gets the... Uh, Title already, you both sign it, he hands it to you and says, the car is yours. Here's the key. Go use it, bring it back when you're done, park it, we'll take care of the key for you. Every time you need it, you call us up and we'll see if it's available. And uh, if it's not, wait a few days, we'll get it ready for you. You would say, give me my money back. <laughs> That's not how I buy a car. I want what I, what I paid for. And sometimes we live like that, don't we? Uh, praise the Lord for saving my soul. <laughs> and we think that the purchase deserves the title. He knows he owns us. But we go about and live for ourselves as if we weren't bought at all. 
He didn't want a title. He wants the property. It's like we want the car. So why surrender to Christ? It's because his love compels it. His sacrifice demands it. Many fear surrender because it seems like bondage. It seems like limits. It's a sad way to live. Some people say the cost is too high. It's too great of a cost. But there's a paradox in this that I want us to see. And uh, Jesus not only requests surrender, but he also shows us what that looks like. And he shows us the consequence of that. You know, if you're, if you're afraid of losing freedom when you surrender to Christ, let me show you what true freedom looks like. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, it says, The Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Jesus was born of the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He was motivated by the Spirit. And here it says, Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so we could look at the life of Jesus Christ and His submission to the Father and the fullness of the Spirit and could say that's the freest life that has ever walked the earth. Is that is that possible to say that? I think it is. But this is how it works. So when he was 12 years old and went to the temple and his parents couldn't find him for three days, and they came back and found him and said, why did you do this to us? Didn't you know we were looking for you? The spirit of liberty in Jesus Christ did not free him from submitting to his parents, but it freed him from rancor. It freed him from rebellion and resistance to what they wanted him to do. And he went with them because it's free to do that. He was led into the desert for 40 days, fasted out there. And uh, the devil said, if you're hungry, turn bread into turn stones into bread. You can eat. You can satisfy this. The spirit of liberty did not free Jesus from hunger pains, but it did free him from the controls of his appetites. He was able to say no to that and go on with his hunger because he was a free man. He did not was not in bondage to those things. In Gethsemane, the soldiers were approaching with swords and spears, and Jesus saw them coming. He knew what was next. He'd known it since days before. The disciples were gripped with fear, and they ran. And I think they ran pell-mell. I guess Peter was stayed around long enough to take an ear off and then ran. But Jesus was free. Not free to run, but to stay. Uh, not to save himself, but to give himself. He walked up to the soldiers and said, uh, I'm the one you're looking for. Just let the others go. And Jesus lived in perfect surrender to God, and I believe more than any other man who was perfectly free to do what he knew God wanted him to do. So surrender in Jesus' life meant freedom in these ways. And in this perfect surrender, Jesus was perfectly happy. There's a verse in Hebrews 1.9 that says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. There's a cause and effect here. There's a loving of righteousness and a hating of iniquity in the whole concept of surrendering to God. And it, it brought into his life more gladness and more happiness than any other man had. Because true joy does not come from my running around looking for it. It comes when God decides to pour it out. And give it to you. This is what Jesus did here, received here. We don't tend to think about it that way. I was talking to a young man years ago and speaking about how much God loves us. There's a verse in, he, in, in John 17, I believe, that's 
that means at least that God loves us the same way he loved his son. That's a beautiful thought. And the young man looked at me and said, yeah, and and God killed his son on the cross and never let him get married. Uh, The attitude was, if you surrender your life to God, he's going to ruin it. (laughs) He's not going to let you get the most enjoyable things out of it. And that's an underlying thought many people have. And many people think that way is because they don't understand this paradox yet. The paradox is surrender and joy working together. I believe Jesus was a happy person. He didn't seek his life, he gave it. And that's what brings and invites the grace and joy of the Lord in a person's life. It says this in Hebrews 10, verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written to me, to do thy will, O God. There's a big difference between a sacrifice and a contribution. There's a uh, retired Green Beret in our area that loves to talk, and he sent me a couple of texts during these days. He's from Rochester. His dad started a Lutheran church in Rochester many years ago. And he said, be a pig, not a chicken. And I think I know what he meant. Because pigs give a total contribution, uh, a total commitment, and a chicken makes a contribution. That's the difference between what they give to your breakfast One is a contribution, one's a sacrifice. And people think about life this way. If I can just give a little bit, a token, you know. And Jesus said, nope, I'm going to stand in the offering basket. That's my sacrifice. It's me. You give me a body, here it is, for your use. Now, if Ben Hadad were outside, this would not be a recipe for a happy life. It wouldn't. But it's not. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who came to give, not take, who came not to ruin but restore, and not to grieve us but to bring us joy. And I believe if we hesitate to surrender to the Lord, it's because we don't really know him yet. If we truly knew what there is to gain, there would probably be a mad rush to surrender to him. I believe there would. But when Jesus' claims are presented to us, it seems like that unleashes a civil war in the soul between what I want, what Jesus wants. And there's this back and forth between the creature and the creator. Do I surrender? Do I fight? Do I give up or continue? And this can only end when I acknowledge that I am the usurper and Jesus is the owner. Uh, my rebellion started the conflict, and I'm in a battle here with God, and I'm miserable if I win, and I'm happier if I give up. And that's the outcome that we're looking for. I'd like to suggest that in our Christian walk, there are some specific things that I think God is interested in. When we come to Christ and when people come to Bible school, this is often a, a concept that's talked about. And we say, yes, Lord, I surrender. Anywhere, you, any what, what you want, I'm okay with. But when we say that, we have no idea what's coming. We don't know what he might ask. There's a lot of things in life that we're just not prepared for. But as we begin to walk that way, he might put his finger on something or allow something in our life or ask us to carry this for a while. And because of that initial surrender, we're saying yes and yes and okay. And we continue to walk with that initial attitude toward him. 
So often our surrender has to be renegotiated. It's not negotiated. It's re, uh, recommitted. And we face things like that. Uh, this, we talked about this the other evening, but this, God wants us to surrender when there's unsanctified practices the Lord points out in our life. You remember we talked about the black, the white, the gray, our tendency to just think that most of life doesn't really matter. And maybe sometimes the Lord puts his finger on something that does matter. Our goals tend to be just to get ourselves out of sin. His goal wants to be to make us sanctified and like his, like his son. And uh, so we go back with these unsanctified things to continue to walk with him. And a surrendered heart recognizes that God wants first place. And it's often in that quest for, for first place for God that, that things pop up in our life that, that show our tendency toward idolatry in some way. And, uh, you know, the first and great commandment is love the Lord with all your heart. The first of the ten is have no other gods before me. So those things are needful in our life. That's a command that's very important. And the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what should I do to gain eternal life? And he had done some things right. He came to the right source. He asked the right question. And Jesus conversed with him. And Jesus saw something in him that he addressed. I believe he saw in this young man's life a towering idol of independence and superiority. And uh, he knew this man would never be able to understand, trust, or walk with the Lord of that. And he said, if you really want life, get rid of that. Sell it. Give it away. And he walked away sorrowfully. Jesus was not giving him a good work he could do to earn life. He was giving him a recipe to to destroy the idol that was getting in the way. And, uh, you know, many things in life are legitimate, useful. But I've noticed in my own life that if God ever does tap something in my life, and if I, I immediately resist that and cling to that and and hold it closer, after some back and forth, this thing begins to represent my own rebellion and resistance toward the Spirit of God. And that's when it becomes a problem. And so we must go back to the altar again with that. We're not here tonight to define things and say, well, God wants you to do this or that. But we are here to say that God has a right to speak into our life. And uh, that's what God is concerned about, and that's where surrender matters. As we walk with the Lord, and as he deals with us this way, we must cling to one simple fact, and that fact is that God is for us and not against us. And when he comes with things and adds things and takes things and and things are painful, we can almost feel like he's hurting me. But the husbandman with his pruning shears is not against the grapevine at all. It's for it. The shepherd with the sheep is not against them. He's for them. He wants their good. He wants to take them to a certain place. Sometimes God does things or tests us in ways to grow our faith. Uh, you know, Job's test was different than Abraham's test. Job had no choice. He lost everything in one day with, without God asking his permission at all. Abraham was asked to go do something voluntarily. And sometimes we're tested like Job, and maybe it's easier that way because my will isn't quite as involved, at least initially. And uh, the cows die, or the engine blows, or uh, 
friends leave or crops fail or disease strikes or things can happen. We didn't ask for them. God didn't ask our permission for that. And when that happens, we're called to respond like Job did. He said, you gave, you're taking away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's no recrimination and no fighting back. And that is the the motto of a surrendered life. I never really owned it anyway. It was a gift. It's a motto of a surrendered life. Sometimes we're tested like Abraham, and he says, by your own hand, I want you to go and do this. And then it requires our will, and that is quite a battle sometimes, to grapple with and to submit to. Sometimes it's just the result of being asked to do a greater service. This happened to me when I went to Guatemala. I was 19 years old. I was dearly in love with guitar playing. And down there in MAM, they asked for no musical instruments because of some of the cultural things and some of the backgrounds. That was hard. And I had to lay it down and go to Guatemala. I remember walking down the street and seeing a guitar store and just wanted to go in and play that guitar so bad. Uh, no more fishing. No more hunting. Lay it down. And it wasn't because it was wrong necessarily. It's just that in order to do this, you had to leave this. And so that was just a step I was required to take. And there's many more important things that you might be called for. Sometimes there's reasons that are only known to God. Do you love me more than these? And the attitude of surrender is always, I'm the clay, he is the potter. I'm the branch, he is the husbandman. I'm the servant, he is the master. And so we live that way. And as we live this way, something happens. We don't have time to get into this. There's a whole study in the life of Abraham we could get into. I'll give you the brief outline and show you how this worked for him. Abraham had three major surrender experiences in his life. First, he was asked to leave home and country and go to uh, a new place. That was one big one. He was asked to, well, he uh, offered Lot the best of the, which land do you want? That was something he had to lay down, I guess. Lot took the plains. He took the mountains. Then that last hard one, when he was asked by God to take his only son and surrender him on Mount Moriah. Those are the three big tests. And he built about three or four altars in his life. When he arrived in Canaan from Haran, he built an altar before the Lord. And in essence, he was saying, Lord, you've called me, I've obeyed, here I am, here's the altar, I'm surrendering this. And after he gave up the land and went to his new area, it says he built an altar unto the Lord and worshipped. And then he built that last altar. On that last altar, he placed his most precious possession. And God stopped him. We know the story from killing his son and said, no, no, don't do that. But the most beautiful thing of this whole picture is every time he faced a test and every time he built an altar, God met him and spoke with him on the other side of that experience. The first time he said, look at the land. I'm going to walk up and down the land. It's going to be yours. The next time he said, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you an inheritance. You're going to have a son. And the last time, after he surrendered Isaac that way, God met him. It was almost like God was gushing. God said, the land's going to be yours. An inheritance is going to be yours. You'll be a blessing to all the nations on the earth because you've not withheld your son from me. In other words, God is saying, if you give me your best, I'll give you my best back. And that's a principle I think we can hold to. Whatever it is that God leads us into, no matter what we have to lay down to get there, God will be there to meet us on the other side. 
And sometimes we get the idea, if I give up something, God's going to have to give me something back. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. The thing that he will do is, by his presence and by his communion with you, will prove to you that, that he is with you. Sometimes God does that in very obvious ways, very unique ways, and sometimes he doesn't. I'll share one with you because it's, it's, it was so obvious to me that I couldn't miss it. And I had to keep it because he might never do that again. But when we were living in Guatemala and I was asked once to go share some youth meetings in Harrisonburg. And so, uh, I was preparing to go and a few days before I flew, I was studying there for the, the message I was supposed to give. And something came over me with such an, such a, a real thing that if if you go up there and they give you some contribution for your trip, for your time, don't accept it. And it wasn't just a passing whim. This was so close. It was so pressing that I could not study another minute until I accepted this thing. It was so uh, real to me. I said, okay, that's fine. I mean, you could always use a little extra cash, but they'd pay for the ticket already. So, And so studying went much better after that. And so I went up and we shared in the meetings there when they wanted to, you know, give me a check afterwards to cover some time. I said, no, I'll give it to something else. You can keep it, whatever. It was very interesting. In two weeks that we were there, uh, people started handing us stuff, an envelope, a check, some cash. Something came in the mail. And after two weeks, we were flying back to Guatemala. We were sitting on a flight from probably North Carolina to Houston, and this gentleman was sitting back a few rows behind us on the other side, and I had my Bible out, and he had his Bible out, so I knew he must be a believer. And, and after getting off the plane, he shook my hand and asked where he was from and, and told me who he was. He was a, a minister from a big Baptist church there in, in Houston. And he went on up the ramp, and we got our family together to leave the plane. And we got up the jetway, and there he was waiting for us. And he reached out his hand to shake mine and said, Here, take your family out for, for a meal. And he stuck a $50 bill in my hand. I have no idea why. And so we got back to Guatemala and we started counting up everything that was given anonymously and unexpectedly throughout those days. And it came up to exactly four times the amount that we had said no to. Four times, exactly. And at that point, the money didn't mean near as much as the fact that God required something and then showed himself so clearly afterwards that I've got this. You you yield a little bit to me and I've got this. And the money meant much less than the fact that God thought about me. This little me, God actually thought about me. And that's amazing. God will not always give us things. Some people feel like if I surrender my whatever, then God is going to do whatever. If I surrender my singleness, God will send me a wife. Or if I surrender my whatever, God will send me a bigger whatever. Don't don't count on that. But just know that God will be there and make his communion with you sweet and real. In conclusion, is surrendering to Christ so hard? Is it ruin? Is it loss? Is it regret? I'll give you two examples yet before I close. To show you how I believe this works. In 2015, we bought an old house. And it was sagging. The, the floors were rotting. The 
foundations were sagging. The roof needed to be replaced. The fences were falling. The passages were grown up. And it was an unruly place. It had not been lived in for nearly a year. Not been kept up with for a long time before that. But it was cheap, so we bought it. And started fixing it up. And there were bats in the attic. And, and I remember the day we signed the deed. I went out there to that property, the very first property I'd ever owned, and just lay down on the ground and thought, it's mine. I bought it. <laughs> it's sort of a unique feeling. And then we began wrecking. We stripped out the inside. We pulled out the windows. We added an addition. We um, had to fix the floors and add a roof and many things. And it was slow work. And after about a year of work, we had a house we could live in. But that was the house, and we had to start building fences and mowing pasture and getting some animals and planting fruit trees and planting grapes. And, and there's still a pile of work to do. It'll be a long project to do. Still a work in progress. But before I bought it, this seven-and-a-half-acre project was under no man's hand, under no man's authority, under no person's management. And what I did was a process of bringing an unruly, useless situation under control to make it useful and beautiful. That was my goal, make it presentable and fruitful. And that's what I set about to do. And your life is like that. Every part of your life you surrender to Christ will be more fruitful, will be more beautiful, more orderly, and have more purpose than if you wouldn't have done it. Imagine your life like a farm. It's overgrown. The house is falling down and things are unkempt because they're under your control. Imagine every acre of that farm being surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and put under the plow and put under his, his authority and planted and fertilized and growing. That's not a hard picture of surrender, is it? You surrender to that, there will be beauty and usefulness and fruitfulness to man that you will never experience otherwise. That's one example. I was at a wedding recently, maybe not quite recently, and I was sitting up near the front, sort of around the side, and so I could see expressions and see faces. And uh, so the groom came in the front, and he was standing there expectantly, and from the back came the father of the bride and the bride, bringing the bride up front. And I saw the bride's beaming face as she walked up the aisle, looking at her husband. And, you know, that's a defining moment. Behind her was a life of singlehood, a life of freedom, a life of independence, a life of doing what she wants. She had time. She had energy. She had ability. She could, you know, there's a lot she could do. And up here in the front was a husband. And she said, I do, and lay down all that to gain a husband. And she was willing to do that. And of all the pictures of surrender, I believe this is one that probably comes the closest to what we're called to do. Behind me is my life, my schedule, my habits, my enjoyment, my purposes. And before is the one that loved me and gave himself for me. And when I say I do to that, I lay down many things. But I walk away from the altar with him. And every Saturday, many, many brides do the same thing. I guess they still feel it's worth it. And I still feel it's worth it with the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at him and make the same choice. That's the question we need to answer. Has the issue of lordship been established in my life? What unfruitful field is left? What unbroken idol? What long-running argument that I have with Jesus? Are we at peace with him? Whatever God has said to you tonight or this week, 
I don't have a better time than now to do it. Opportunities come and go. The Spirit speaks and then the urgency fades. Life ends. There's many things we wish we'd have done a long time ago. Best time to plant fruit trees is 10 years ago. The best time to buy land was 20 years ago. The best time to surrender to the Lord was the first time he nudged us. And if we haven't done it yet, here we are this many years later, this long later, and we're still grappling with it. Somebody said every day of delay leaves one day more to repent of and one less day to repent in. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus is the one that's inviting and Jesus waits at the altar and Jesus shows what true freedom and joy looks like. And we grapple with things, Lord, because we don't have the experience yet to know what walking with you fully might look like and might be like. And I just want to ask in a very simple way that you would look through our hearts and call us to your attention and show us areas that may yet be unsurrendered, unfruitful fields, grown-up places, broken-down things that you would love to mend and repair and use for your glory. Lord, if our heart is unbroken, please break it. If our life is unsurrendered, help us to do that. We want to leave here tonight walking in peace with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.